chapter 2, verse 3. Genesis 1, 26, chapter 2, verse 3 is where we're reading. So beginning in Genesis 1, verse 26, here's what we, we find. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him, male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Well, we have already seen in Genesis 1.26 that same verse, pivotal verse, where God declares His intention to make man. We have seen there that He also states His purpose for man, His purpose for our existence. Namely, He says that we would have dominion. Human beings were created to rule over this earth and all the life that it contains. That means that human beings were created to work. Labor is a part of God's good intention for us. We are to work both managerially and creatively with God's creation. Work is a creation ordinance. Everybody say creation ordinance. A command, this is what a creation ordinance is, it's a command given to all humanity by our Creator at the beginning of our existence. One of the commands that God gave to all humanity at our beginning was the command to work. Now that's not the only creation ordinance. Rather, not only in our work, but also in our rest, God has chosen to be worshipped. He has determined that our lives will be separated into periods of work, separated by a seventh day of rest. This day is to be spent in being refreshed both physically and spiritually and finding enjoyment in God. So in the beginning, God exercised His dominion in six days of work and then also in a day of rest. 
And this pattern of six days of work, a day of rest, seems to be the rhythm that our lives of dominion are to fall into. And so rest is a second creation ordinance. So at the beginning, God spoke to Adam and Eve, and he told them to work, and he told them to rest. There's a third creation ordinance. It was not God's will that Adam and Eve alone should serve as his regents on the earth, but rather it was his will that they would multiply and fill the earth with others who would bear his image and honor him. Every child, grandchild, great-grandchild, etc. of Adam and Eve was to exercise dominion in diverse and various ways in different places throughout the earth, all for the glory of God. And so we see in these verses the creation ordinance of procreation, this creation ordinance to humanity to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. So we see these three, this command to work, this command to rest, this command to multiply... What this means is that God did not merely come to Adam and Eve and say, have dominion, and then leave them alone to figure out what that meant. Rather, he told them to have dominion with himself as the ultimate example of what that should look like. But he also gave them these three ordinances to help bring structure and form to their commission. He went further than that. For each of these three creation ordinances... He gave them a creation institution. Say creation institution. Creation institution. Now these tie in with the ordinances. For the creation ordinance of work, he gave us the six days of work. For the creation ordinance of rest, he instituted the seventh day Sabbath. And for the creation ordinance of procreation, he instituted marriage. The context in which procreation was to take place. So we have our purpose, dominion. We have our ordinances, right? Humanity's ordinances to help carry out that purpose. Work, rest, procreation. And we have three creation institutions to help serve these. Namely that of the work week, the Sabbath, and marriage. Well, those are some of the things we're going to talk about over the next few services. But tonight, our focus is work. To which you might say, I've got to do that tomorrow. We're going to talk about that tonight? Well, I hope you'll see that work is actually a good Thing. Where do we see work in this passage? Well, we see it in verse 26 and verse 28, mainly in the words, have dominion. To have dominion implies labor. The kind of dominion envisioned here is not that of a king who sits idly on his throne doing nothing. Rather, it's of a ruler who is intimately involved in his kingdom, working in it and over it to accomplish his purposes. Our God has dominion. And does he just sit idly on his throne doing nothing? No. Our God exercises his dominion every day. He is intimately involved in his creation. So we are to imitate his example. Adam is our proof that dominion means work. Because we see Adam exercising dominion in the garden through work. In fact, Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This was what it meant for Adam to have dominion. God made him a steward, making him responsible for the upkeep and the productivity of the garden. He was entrusted with a portion of God's creation. It was his duty to ensure that it was well cared for. 
Now, by the way, this does disprove the common notion that work is a result of the fall. That somehow when God brought the curse on Adam and Eve for their sin, work was a part of that curse. That is untrue because here is work before the fall. Now, the fall did certainly affect work. And we're going to spend a lot of time in a few minutes talking about how the fall affected work. But before the fall, when man was in paradise, man was at work. Work was a gift to man that brought man joy. Work was something that we were given by God-given nature. I'm sorry. Work was something that we were by God-given nature inclined towards in the beginning. It was a delightful way through which we worshipped our God. Our God is infinitely happy and He works. So also Adam and Eve at the beginning were filled with joy and they worked. So if you have in your mind this connotation of work is non-joy, remove that. In fact, let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time in your life in which you did some kind of work that brought you a deep, satisfying joy? Have you ever known that kind of work? Some of you may be employed at that kind of work. I hope so. That's great. But some of you may not be, and my fear is that you might be equating work with negative feelings. And so I want you to think of a time when you were working and your working brought you great joy. Some people really love physical labor. Some people find a lot of delight in in doing something that, that, that exercises the muscles and get the endorphins going and you know whether it's chopping wood or something like that, but they, they really enjoy physical labor work. It, it satisfies them. Other people seem to be wired differently. They, they really enjoy artistic work. Maybe it's quilting or sculpting or even just decorating your home. These are activities. They, they require work, sometimes hard work, but for many, they're a very happy kind of work. They're a kind of work that some find a deep enjoyment in doing. Writing music or literature, putting together a good lesson plan or even a good sermon can be a thrill for some. What kind of work have you known that brought joy to you? Got your answer? Nod your head if you got your answer. For Adam and Eve, that's what all work was like. All work was delightful work. It was heavenly work. All their labor was a delight to their souls. Just as God finds great happiness in exercising His attributes, as He does various deeds to accomplish His purposes, so Adam and Eve found great happiness in exercising their bodies, exercising their minds, in doing the things that God had instructed them to do. Their work was a joy to them. And Christian, this is exactly how it will be for us in the future when we are in heaven. Scriptures tell us that we will reign with Christ for all eternity. In our responsive reading this morning, right there in Revelation 21 about the new heavens and the new earth, there's that verse in there about us reigning, ruling, having dominion with Christ. Do not think of heaven as a place where you will finally escape work. Rather, think of heaven 
as a place where all your work will be happy work carried out without the burden of the curse in complete dependence upon the strength that God supplies for his glory forever and ever. In the beginning, all human work was first-rate work. Laziness, sloppiness, these were not found in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve knew that they were worshiping their God through their work. And so it was their joy to give themselves fully to it. They would have striven for excellence. Their work was done in wisdom and with great skill. God had fashioned them in such a way that they had the abilities that they needed to do their work well. In these early days, all human work was done in faith. Adam and Eve knew better than any of us in this room that they lived every single day in dependence upon God. It was He who created them, He who gave them breath, He who gave them the garden, He who gave them all they needed to be nourished and live. And so as Adam worked, as Adam planted the seeds and worked the soil, he knew ultimately it was God who was going to cause the crops to grow. So all his work was done in dependence upon God. Each and every day, Adam and Eve worked with the strength provided to them by their God. And they knew this, they were consciously aware of it, and it brought them joy. They were the managers of the garden, but they knew that God was its owner and the one who would ensure that he would give them all they needed for the task set before them. These were great days. This was paradise. And then came the fall. And then sin entered our world. What effect has the curse had on our work, on our commission to have dominion over the earth? Well, first, I want us to note that despite the fall, the inclination, the God-given inclination in the human heart to exercise dominion by working managerially and creatively with God's creation, that that instinct still remains. Look with me at Genesis 4. The fall, Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 4. Look in verses 17 through 21. At the ungodly line of Cain, the seed of the serpent... Here we have this this genealogy of men who did not know the Lord, who had been greatly affected by the fall and lived in rebellion against God. Beginning in verse 17, we read about this line. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuahil, and Mahuahil fathered Methushahel, and Methushahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. We think that Lamech was probably the first polygamist. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
Lamech was an arrogant murderer. He was probably the first polygamist, and he was just an example of the ungodliness of this line. And yet, despite the wickedness of all these men, the instinct to exercise dominion remained. You read about Jabal the father of those who dwelled in tents and gathered together livestock and worked with livestock. You read about Jubal, the father of those who played musical instruments, taking God's creation, creating musical instruments out of them and creating music from them. There is Tubal Cain, the father of those who work with, with metals, the ironsmiths and the blacksmiths. Here are wicked men using God-given instincts to exercise dominion over creation. So despite the fall, there is still an instinct in man to reign, to rule, to work with God's earth. Now, we ought to be very thankful for that. This is no small thing that the dominion instinct remains even in sinful man because it is partly through this that God cares for us, his children. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer told us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. How does God answer that prayer? He could rain down manna from heaven, but that's not his typical way, is it? How does God provide the bread that he gives to you? Doesn't he use the vocations of many different men and women to bring that food to you? Many unbelievers included in that line, probably, right? There is the farmer who grows the crops. There's the factory men who produce the farmer's tractor. There's the bank manager who loaned the factory the funds to begin operation. There's the workers at the power company who allow the, the factory to have the power it needs. There's those who process the food, those who package the food, those who transport the food, those who sell the food. So many different men and women working, exercising their God-given instinct to have dominion being used in a positive way by God to care for us, His children. Consider our prayers for the sick. How often we pray to God for healing for those we know and love. We've already done it tonight. And sometimes God, without any human means, chooses to miraculously heal somebody. He does that sometimes. But is that the typical way? Probably not. The typical way that God answers our prayers for healing is through the vocations of doctors and nurses, specialists of all kinds, those who produce and make medicine, those who produce and make medical equipment. God uses these men and women, despite their wickedness, despite their sin, He uses their God-given inclination to work for our good. So exercising dominion is still something inherent and instinctive to the human race. Nevertheless, the fall has had devastating effects both on the nature of the work we do and also on us as workers. Let me explain some things that the fall has done to our instinct as workers. Because of the fall, there is a curse on creation which has made it more difficult to work with than it was in the beginning. There is a very real sense in which creation now resists our dominion. Consider the plants. In the beginning, as Adam worked the soil, he did not have to deal with weeds. 
He didn't have to deal with thorns coming up out of the ground and trying to choke his crops. Rather, his work was real work, but there was an ease to Adam's work. But look at Genesis 3 and the curse that came with the fall. Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam he, God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice the new elements that the curse has brought to our working with the ground. In pain we shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles opposing our work. Only by the sweat of our faces will we eat bread. Creation still provides what we need, but it provides it begrudgingly. And we now have to work harder to have what we had before the fall. Consider the animals. It's no different there. Before the fall, the animals would have known Adam and Eve and man as rulers over them. There would have been a natural instinct in animals to heed the rule of the man and the woman. But with the curse, there seems to have come upon the animal kingdom an adversarial instinct to man. So that you think of almost any animal that exists today and its instinct is not to come to man, but to retreat from man or to attack man. That is a part of the fall. Whether it's a mouse, a bird, a lion, a zebra, these animals no longer submit themselves to the rule of man, but fight against it. Consider children. Can you imagine, just imagine this, parenting a child with no sin before the fall? How easy! Oh, it was still work. I mean, you still had to teach them things, right? There was still work to be done, but there was an ease to the work. There was no disobedience. There was no instinct to rebel. There was no need for discipline. All of these things that make parenting such hard work, they came because of the fall. The work of parenting is much more difficult because of the curse. So whereas Adam's work as ruler over the earth was relatively easy before sin entered the world, the curse has made the job that much more difficult to fulfill. Real sweat Real perseverance and indeed much grace is required to have success in exercising dominion well on the earth today. The fall has also affected the kinds of work that people do, right? Many of the types of work that humans do today would not have been needed in a world without sin. Some of you in this room, you would not have the job you have were it not for the fall. In the beginning, there was no need for doctors, no need for nurses, no need for policemen or jailers. There was no need for soldiers, no need for aid workers. These vocations have come about as a temporary necessity because we live in a world with sin. They were not in the original creation. They will not exist again in the new earth. They are merciful gifts to God to us today because we need them because of our sin. More than that, however, the fall has produced in human beings a willingness to do kinds of work that are perverse 
in which we're never a part of God's intention for us. Uh, We have used the creative instinct that God has given us to come up with kinds of work that do the opposite of what we were created to do. Kinds of work that neither neither glorify God nor serve man. Kinds of work that that do not promote God or worship God or or show His glory. Rather, kinds of work that dishonor Him. Consider those who make their living illegally through the production and selling of illegal substances. Consider those who make their living through the production and promotion of literature or movies that portray and condone immorality. There are those who their work, their living is made by the killing of unborn children in their mother's wombs. There are literally hundreds of thousands in our own country who make their living off of the gambling industry. All these kinds of work are wicked kinds of work, kinds of work that ought not to be done and are a result of the curse The fall has not only affected the nature of our work, the fall has also affected the way we perceive work. Because now that genuine work has become more difficult, we are more prone to view it in a warped way, as something to be avoided, as something that is negative. For many, sin has affected their hearts in such a way that they want the fruits of labor, but they don't want to do the labor itself. They want to have the results of hard work, but they seek to avoid the work itself. They want to be prosperous. They want to enjoy nice things, but they do not want to have to labor for it. Some are content to live off the work of others. Others will have a job, but their hearts are constantly seeking ways to do as little as possible and still get the paycheck at the end of the day. Can I just say that this kind of work ethic is sinful and ought not to characterize us as Christians? And if we have that kind of mentality, we need to repent of it and throw it away because that's not the character of our God. Some appear to have been affected by the curse in the opposite way. They are workaholics. (laughs) They seem to love work. Work is everything to them. In fact, they might point out that from the very moment Adam was created there on the sixth day, Adam appears to have been working. He was busy naming the animals. But what they miss is that after the sixth day came the what day? Seventh day. Adam's first day of existence was a day of work, but his second day was a day of rest, a day of refreshment, a day of uninterrupted fellowship with God and his wife. And so some miss the fact that while work was a major part of paradise and whereas work should be a major part of our lives, God is worshipped in our rest as well. There are those who seem only to find pleasure when they're in the office giving 110% to their jobs. In fact, in our own society, giving 110% to your job is typically lauded as a great thing. But the truth of the matter is that these kinds of workaholics are typically lazy men and women in disguise. Why do I say that? Because often men and women give themselves completely to their jobs because they don't want to deal with their other responsibilities. Caring for their families, 
serving their communities, being in fellowship with their churches, and communing, most importantly, with God Himself. See, I don't want you to leave here thinking that when we're talking about work, we're just talking about your employment. That's not all we're talking about. Someone who is giving 110% to their place of employment is obviously giving far less to other vital callings. As Christians, we are to seek a balanced, well-ordered, prioritized life. We should work, and we should work hard, and we should strive for excellence. But we should not work hard only in our places of employment. We should work hard at fulfilling our roles in our families. We should strive for excellence in fulfilling our roles in our churches. We should ensure that when our day of rest comes, we are prepared to give our full energy and attention to God's worship, bringing to Him the sacrifices of our singing and our listening and our giving and our praying and all else we can do to be spiritually fruitful for Him. Now add to all of these negative effects of the fall the fact that whereas in the beginning Adam and Eve did all their work in complete dependence upon God, we today seem to forget very often that ultimately it's God who blesses and brings fruitfulness. And because we forget, we forget that, we tend to tackle tasks in dependence upon our own selves alone. And we get frustrated. And we get stressed when things do not go well. And we get arrogant and we get proud when they do go well. We carry out our work in a man-centered, man-dependent way rather than in a God-centered, God-dependent way. Or friends, is there any hope for us fallen workers? Yes. Jesus Christ came to save us from these sins as well. Christ came to save us from our wicked attitudes, wicked thoughts, wicked words, and wicked behaviors related to work. The sins of laziness, of greed, of pride, of apathy, of carelessness, and a thousand others are all forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. At the cross, Christ bore the punishment these sins deserve for us who are His people. And though we deserve eternal judgment for these sins, we have found salvation through Him. Now, for us who are Christians, part of Jesus' sanctifying work in our lives is His restoring us to the kind of workers we were at the beginning. He is removing from our hearts those sinful vices related to work and replacing them with appropriate virtues. Christ is the gardener of our hearts, pulling out even now the weeds of sinful attitudes and planting in their place appropriate attitudes. Instead of laziness, Christ is developing in us a love of excellence. I hope He is. That's what He ought to be doing in you. If you're a Christian, even now, tonight, God should be developing in you a love for these things. Instead of greed, Christ is developing in us a passion to work for His honor and His glory. He is replacing our pride with a spirit of humility and dependence upon Him. He is replacing our apathy with the understanding that our lives and work really do matter, even eternally. 
He is rooting out our carelessness and planting in its place a spirit of joyful concern for all we say, think, and do for the glory of God. Christians, by God's grace, we now have a new heart that has some desire for these virtues. We love what we see in our God and we want some of it. We want all of it if we could have it. All of His holy character, we want it for ourselves. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that great workman Himself who through, through whom Christ gives to us these graces. We've been given the Bible, Christian fellowship, prayer, and many other means of grace which the Holy Spirit uses to grow in us all kinds of spiritual fruit into a bountiful harvest. And He who began this good work in us will bring it to completion, which means that in your life, as you grow as a Christian, you should see more and more of these sinful attitudes towards work falling to the wayside and more and more of the good work ethic, the love of excellence, this perseverance, the pure motive of God should be coming onto you and growing in your life. Is it happening? Is it happening in your life? Is that a progress that you can, you can see, maybe not over a matter of weeks, but over a matter of years? Are you a different employee today than you were 10 years ago? As a Christian, you ought to be. What should our response be to all this? Well, if that's what the Spirit is doing in our lives, let's get in step with the Spirit. What you say? Let's walk in the Spirit. If He is making us the kind of workmen that please God and reflects His character, let's live in accordance with that. If we've been made new, if we are being made new, then let us walk in newness of life. We get very practical, I'll tell you some things this should mean. One, it means you should take time to recognize those vocations to which you have been called. Everybody say vocation. Vocation, vocation is a Latin word that simply means callings. And God has placed on every person in this room different callings. In, our, in our, the secular world today, we use vocation merely for employment. But friends, you have more than one vocation. You have vocations. Different callings God has put on your life. There's your vocation of your employment, but there's also, what, um, are you a spouse? Then God has called you towards certain things. Are you a parent? Then in the Bible, God calls you to do certain things. Are you a grandparent? Are you a church member? Are you a ministry leader? Are you an officer in some community group? All of these are different vocations, different callings which have been put in your life and you need to recognize those vocations so that you can assess them and see, am I fulfilling God's will for me there? Am I giving my all to these? Am I doing well in prioritizing these and striving for excellence within them? Second, you should strive to see all of your vocations, all of your callings, in light of what we've learned today. Ultimately, all the ways in which you've been called to exercise dominion, and you've been called to do that in several different ways, all the ways in which you've been called to do that are for the glory of God and to display His character. 
As a Christian, the way you carry out your callings as a workman, as a spouse, as a parent, as a church member, as a member of this club, right? All the different things in your life. As you carry out those callings, you are taking the name of Christ with you. Therefore, you bear a reflection upon Him. Oh, Christians should not be known for bad work. Colossians 3, um, Paul writing to slaves, but it applies to us. He says this, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Listen to this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Is that you? Do you work heartily for the Lord? That means with your whole heart. Do you fulfill your various callings with the understanding that your primary boss is the Lord Jesus Christ and that it is He supremely you should seek to please in your work? Is it your joy to work for so great a King? Third, we must lovingly reprove those who claim the name of Jesus but refuse to work and instead depend on the work of others. Now, I'm not talking about those who cannot work. I'm talking about those who will not work. You see the difference, right? I'm just going to read what Paul says on the subject, and let that be that. First, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate." For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Pretty strong words, aren't they? For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. So you can be busy and not really be busy, right? Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Well, finally, we should point out that if Christians are those in whom a proper work ethic and attitude are being restored, then where else should we see the finest work than in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? If Christians are those in whom Jesus himself is restoring to us the kind of attitudes about work that Adam and Eve had in the garden, then should not the church of Christ be a place where hard workers are gathering together? Which means if you want to see what genuine work looks like, you ought to be able to find it in the local church, hey? 
quality work. Work with a proper spirit and a proper attitude and with a desire for excellence. In all our work here, whether it's keeping the nursery, whether it's vacuuming the floors, whether it's teaching Sunday school, whether it's leading music, hosting conferences, fixing meals, preaching sermons, we should strive for excellence. Christ is dishonored by shoddy work. He is dishonored by arrogant work. He is dishonored by work not done in His strength. Let us be careful that all our various kinds of work in this place be done well and with humility and with love for our great Savior whose grace is sufficient for us. Well, I'm kind of done, and I'm kind of not. I, I want to address one implication. I didn't know where else to put it in the sermon, so I stuck it at the very end. This won't take but just a minute, but it's important. And if you have questions, we can talk more about it. One more point we need to make, namely, is this, that since we've been entrusted to take care of God's creation, we ought to be good stewards of the earth we live on. Now, there are dangers in talking about being good stewards of the earth one danger is that of treating other created things as more important than human life, something Genesis 1 clearly contradicts. There are those who would go way out of their way to save a well, but care nothing about saving babies from abortion. Right? That is, that is out of whack. That is out of sync with proper priorities. There is also the danger of breaking the first commandment. Because the environmentalist movement today often has some very religious components to it. A sort of worship of Mother Nature as if she was some kind of a goddess to be adored and even sacrificed to. We want to avoid anything like that. That said, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that we ought not to take good care of the earth. That clearly also would contradict what we've seen. We do have a responsibility, and Christians ought to set the example of how to do this well. This is our Father's world, and it is to treat it carelessly is to disrespect Him. The Bible clearly commands us to love our neighbors, and there is a substantial connection between caring for the earth and loving our fellow human beings. Because pollution of air, pollution of water, the unwise use of natural resources does affect other people both today and in future generations. Imagine that you allowed somebody to stay in your house and watch over it for a few days while you went out of town. And you said that they had privileges as your house sitter, right? They could use your bed, they could use your bathroom, they could use the refrigerator, they could sit on your couch, they can watch your television, they can play with your dog, right? They, they, they're to make themselves at home, they're house sitting. They have all these privileges, at the same time, they do have a responsibility. They are to ensure that when you get back, the house is in good order, right? In proper shape. Well, what if you return home from your trip and find that your bed is broken, your drains are clogged, your refrigerator trashed, and your dog dead. I think it is safe to assume that you would not be pleased. Well, similarly, God has given to us His creation with many privileges for us to enjoy, but there is also responsibility that comes with it. 
And God is not pleased when we trash His creation. We need to be good stewards of it. Now, many of the environmental issues that we face today do not have easy answers, and I am not at all qualified to give any opinion on just about any of them. Okay? Um, Those men and women who develop environmental policy, uh, they need our prayers because they need a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of of weird and, 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 and gray areas there. We need to pray for them. I'm glad that's not my job. But what I can do is remind us that the way we treat God's creation in our own personal lives does speak loudly to the world around us about our reverence for our God and our love for our fellow man. Being salt and light in this world does include, it's not primarily, but it does include caring for God's creation. Amen. Are there any questions about 